0: Does your love have any limits? Yes. What, in the, what type of question is that? Let me explain. Out of the people that you love in life, so your family, your, your spouse, or your kids, or your parents, or siblings, or your extended family, maybe a significant other in your life, out of these people, is there anything that would stop you from loving them? Anything? Our initial reaction, of course, is, no way. I love them way too much to ever stop loving them. That's good that you feel that way. It really is. It's a good thing. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> well, my, once in a while, my wife and I have asked this type of question of each other. And One of, my, of us might ask, is there anything that I could do that would keep you from loving me? And the other replies, Nope hmm, well, (laughs) I guess there are maybe a a couple things, right, hypothetically, but you never do those things. (laughs) Now, there might be only one or two things that would take away your love for someone, and they might be unimaginable things, unthinkable, extreme, crazy things. But the fact is, if they did a couple unthinkable things, your love may run out for them. My point is this, that even the best and highest forms of human love do seem to have limits. Now, I want you to think beyond that kind of love, beyond romantic love or familial love, and think about the way that we treat other people in our lives, just the way we treat everyone we meet, lovingly or unlovingly. Do you have a limit on who or how you love. Are there people that you cannot imagine ever loving? It's easy for us to love our families or our friends, but we don't necessarily love random other people in our lives. The people next door, our fellow students, or co-workers, our bosses, our teachers. We don't necessarily love these people. However, we don't necessarily have anything against them, either, do we? So, really, it's not like we have a limit on loving them. We just don't love them, period. We we don't dislike them. But let's go further. How about people that you do have something against? What about then? Does your love have limits with people who annoy you, or frustrate, or anger Bewilder you. Former friends. Former friends who maybe backstabbed you or gossiped about you or betrayed you. What about teachers or professors that you just feel are bad teachers for whatever reason? Maybe people who can't keep their kids under control (laughs) while yours are little angels, right? (laughs) What about people who don't share your beliefs? and just want to argue about them all the time? What about terrible drivers? Bad sports? Cheaters? Annoying relatives? Telemarketers? What about people who are into certain types of sins that you just can't stand? What about ex-boyfriends or girlfriends? Or ex-husbands or wives? I have a feeling that we definitely have limits to our love when it comes to these people, right? Let's go one final step further to people that you don't necessarily personally deal with or maybe people that you don't even know, but for some reason you got something against them too. Think about maybe heartless politicians who you don't agree with or greedy business people or hypocritical Christians or maybe... Hostile atheists, druggies, alcoholics, racists, gangsters, scam artists, spammers, prisoners, criminals of the worst kinds, rapists, child abusers, terrorists, school shooters. One final time. Does your love have any limits? You love these people? Can you love these people? Now that I've gotten you angry thinking about all these people, let's pray. I think we need it, okay? (laughs) You bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would open our hearts to see how much you love us and how much your love for us should impact the way that we live and the way that we relate to those in our lives. I pray that you would just empower us with a supernatural love from your spirit to love even those who hate us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would take your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 is where we'll be starting today. If you have a pew Bible from the pew in front of you, it's on page 862. 862. So last week, we began to look at one of Jesus' most famous sermons. And as he began this sermon, Jesus had some unbelievably encouraging words for his disciples who were going through some humanly challenging times, or that they would be going through these times as well. And back in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6, he said this, and he lifted lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, "'Blessed are you who are poor.'" In heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. These are very encouraging words. On the opposite hand, he was grieved by the humanly successful. And we see this in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The big idea of this section, both extremes, the positive and the negative, the big idea was that God's kingdom reverses human ideals by blessing those who realize their need for him instead of those who are self-sufficient. God's kingdom reverses our ideals. And in this, we saw that our attitudes regarding success and ideals have to be reversed. We've got to change them. We have to change our beliefs about money and food and entertainment and persecution. We can't think the way that the world thinks anymore. Because we're part of this reversal. Grand reversal. And this kingdom reversal is going to continue into the next part of Jesus' sermon. But Jesus is going to move from our attitudes and our beliefs into very practical action in these verses. Not only do we need to reverse the way that we think, we have to reverse the way that we live, the way that we relate to others. And Jesus wanted his followers to live in a radically different way than the world. Let's see what this type of reversal looks like starting in verse 27. do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We'll stop there for now. There's a lot to unpack there as Jesus starts listing off command after command for his disciples. But his very first command in these verses is the one that all the others are built upon. This, is, Thus, it is Jesus' main point, main message that he wants to get across to his followers here, and that's this. That as Jesus' followers, we are to love those who hate or hurt us. Jesus' disciples should love people that hate them and hurt them. And if we call ourselves Jesus' disciples, we should love those who hate or hurt us. These words have become very familiar to us, but imagine hearing them for the first time. But I say to you here, love your enemies. How shocking would that be? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Can you even imagine how shocking that would be? The Jewish law that they had grown up with told people to love their neighbors. It didn't tell them to love their enemies. Okay? Now, I don't really think I've had many enemies in my lifetime. I once got someone to block me on Facebook. <laughs> That's a story for another time, though. Plenty of bad drivers have ticked me off before. The closest I've probably become come to having enemies would probably be playing sports. I'm just, <laughs> I'm too competitive for my own good. <laughs> I remember playing a game of Ultimate Frisbee a few years ago, and... If you play ultimate, ultimate is a, a sport that is self-reft. So we don't have any referees. We call our own fouls and violations and out-of-bounds and stuff like that. And anyway, there was this one game I played, and this one guy on the other team that was super annoying. <laughs> he was nitpicking the rules to the extreme. He was, everyone on our team was getting ticked off of this guy. And I remember one play in particular that I went up, I jumped to catch a frisbee in the air, okay, And if you're familiar with football and football team terms, I'd be on defense going for an interception, okay? That's what I was doing. I was intercepting a Frisbee. But while I was in the air, this man came up behind me, and to this day I think it was on purpose, (laughs) stepped right underneath my jump, okay? He's behind me, comes up underneath me, and waits for me to come down on top of him, okay? Now, I didn't really make that much contact with him. It was incidental, barely touched, but as soon as I came down, this guy hollers out, foul. Now, that would make the possession of Disco go back to the other team, reversing this great play I just made. Okay? It takes a lot to get me mad. But I was furious. I would now I don't remember what I exactly turned around and told him, but let's just say it wasn't very quiet. Okay? Now you might think, whoa! Pastors get mad, too? (laughs) Well, I wasn't a pastor then, but yes, we're sinners. (laughs) Just like you. (laughs) You know what? That story is about a trivial sport, a, a game. And you go on and you forget about it. It's hardly a real enemy, right? Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, definitely had enemies. As Jews, they had enemies from the occupying foreign empire of Rome. Everyone hated the Romans. But more so, as Christ's followers, they were about to make a bunch of enemies. <laughs> because Jesus was quickly accumulating enemies himself. The religious leaders, the scribes, Pharisees, priests, Sadducees, not to mention the political leaders like Herod and his. Herodians or the Sanhedrin. He even had an eventual enemy within his own apostles, Judas. And after Jesus was killed, raised to life, ascended to heaven, what did all these enemies of Jesus do? They turned their hatred on Jesus' followers. Started going after them. They persecuted them, mocking, beating, stoning, killing. Comparatively, we have very few enemies today, in number or scale. Who are our enemies? Do we even have real enemies? Given the context, the enemies that Jesus wants us to love here are especially enemies of our faith. Remember, he just talked about those who revile you and exclude you and insult you. Less than. So he's talking about the persecution. So those who hate us and curse us and abuse us and abuse us and hurt us or take from us because of what we believe. I said last week, we may not have many enemies right now, but that may speak to something that's wrong with our faith as, our, as a culture. Because if we're truly living out our for truly standing up for what we believe, speaking out for what we believe, eventually we will make some enemies. We should never try to make enemies, but naturally it should be happening. In one way, I think this passage today really should prepare us for when we have or when we do have enemies of our faith, people will hate you one day. How will you respond? If you do already have enemies of your faith, bravo! You can apply this directly to your life. If you, when someone hates or hurts you for your faith, Jesus' words come to life here. It means everything. But while this passage, especially speaks to us having enemies of our faith. The principle of love behind it all applies to any and all kinds of enemies. Okay? Even on the sports fields, or on the roads, or at school, or at work, even your fake friends, even your tough bosses, even your annoying relatives, even Your exes. Even people who cheat you. Even people who drive you batty, Even when your spouse is your temporary enemy. The principle of love even applies to distant enemies like politicians or terrorists or criminals. You might think, you hear that and you say, well, loving your enemies sounds way too difficult to do. That's way too hard. And I had respond. And no one said following Jesus is easy. No one claimed that. You might also think that loving your enemies just sounds unnatural. Good. It is unnatural. Following Jesus isn't meant to be natural for us at all. We've got to crucify our flesh and live by the Holy Spirit. It's very unnatural. So how do we do this? How do we love our enemies? Well, Jesus gets extremely practical in his commands and his examples here. In verse 27 he says, But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This speaks of actively doing good for your enemies. Not just putting up with them, but seeking out ways to love them. Looking for ways to... To bless their lives. Ways to serve them. Gifts to give them. So, think of this, okay? Very practical. Next time someone hurts you in any way, start to brainstorm a way that you can practically love them. Instead of responding to evil with evil. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. You can love them with more than just actions. You can love them with your words. So instead of lashing back at someone in anger or trying to defend an argument, Jesus says that his followers should instead respond by blessing their enemy. It means saying something nice to them. Something encouraging. Even God bless you. It's sincere. Next time someone verbally hurts you, try to consciously respond with a blessing instead. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So we've moved from actions to our words, and now Jesus moves to the heart. And at first glance, this might seem like the easiest of these commands, but do you know how hard it can be to pray for an enemy? Jesus is not telling us to pray that fire and brimstone would fall from heaven on them. That would be easy. He's telling us to pray that their lives would be blessed. Like you pray for yourself. Praying that they'd be blessed physically. Blessed by God. Especially blessed and changed spiritually. Next time someone hurts you in any way... Take the time to think, and I pray for them, even on the spot. Lift them up to God. So we love with actions, we love with words, and we love with our heart through prayer. In the next few verses, Jesus is going to expand on this idea with some examples. And he shares a few illustrations in a row of what loving enemies actually looks like. And what we'll see is this, as a summary. As Jesus' followers, we are to love those who hate or hurt us, by peacefully and vulnerably enduring the hurt. We need to love those who hurt us by peacefully and vulnerably enduring the hurt. This is the principle behind verses 29 and 30. And it says this, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not Demand them back. You might think, well, I've never had anyone strike me on the cheek before or take away my clothes, so this doesn't really apply to me. No, no, no. These illustrations are actually representative of any kind of abuse. This is just the the common types of abuse that his disciples might have faced in his day. But we have different types of abuse now. Now. If anyone hurts us physically in any way. If anyone abuses our generosity by asking or taking anything from you unjustly. If anyone steals something from you, anything from you. These verses have applied, do apply, or will apply to all of us because all of us get hurt by other people. It's a fact. And Jesus says here, basically, fighting back isn't love. Trying to get revenge isn't love. Lashing out isn't love. Refusing to give isn't love. Demanding your stuff back isn't love. Jesus instead wants us to endure the heart peacefully, allowing it to happen. Now, it is very easy to misunderstand this passage and think that it's permitting abuse of any kind. That is wrong. Okay? Jesus never excuses the abuser here. He's not even talking to them. Okay? He's talking to those being abused, particularly for their faith. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, spousal abuse, bullying, and the like are all pure evil. There is no excuse for abusing another human being made in God's likeness. None. If there is someone, if if you abuse someone you, on you. All I'll say is, God is going to judge you. If you are being abused by someone else, you need to get help. You really do. What this passage would tell those suffering any kind of abuse, is that somehow, we're still to respond in love. Somehow, to endure and to pray for our abusers. To not retaliate. But, that doesn't mean you need to remain in an unsafe situation. That doesn't mean you can't inform proper authorities. God has ordained civil authorities to enforce the law and to mete out appropriate justice. Kids, if you're being bullied, talk to your parents and your teachers. They need to know. Jesus does not excuse or permit abuse here. He just speaks into the situation and says to endure it when it happens. Peacefully and vulnerably, lovingly. So what does it mean then to turn the other cheek if that's not accepting physical abuse? What does that mean? Well, striking on the cheek in Jesus' day was more of an insult than an injury. Okay? If someone was kicked out of the synagogue, the local house of worship, what they would do is they'd stand them up publicly and slap them with the back of the hand. Okay, So you're, get, you're being rowdy in the synagogue, you get humiliated publicly. It was meant more to humiliate than to hurt you. And Jesus' followers... We're certainly going to be faced with this. They were kicked out of synagogues all the time later on. Jesus' point... wasn't to have someone literally offer their other cheek to be slapped. So if someone comes along, slaps you... you go back, okay... hit me here. I need some balance. (laughs) No, no, no. Jesus' point was to keep doing the things you're doing, being vulnerable... To further abuse so you are being hurt for following me keep following me you're being you're loving others and they humiliate you because of it love some more even if that means hurts gonna come see loving others will make you more vulnerable to abuse it's a fact when I chose to get married I was choosing to be vulnerable my wife could destroy my heart if she wanted when we have children we choose to be vulnerable they could break our hearts when we put ourselves out there to love someone anyone the poor the widows the orphan anyone in need you're opening your heart up for pain if you're truly loving them But love is worth it. The rewards far outweigh the risks and the pain. Daryl Bach, a scholar, says this, The point is that love involves not defending one's rights and accepting wrongs committed against one by being willing to forgive, with the additional provision that one is willing to turn around a second time and still offer help, even if that means being abused yet again. Love is available, vulnerable, and subject to repeated abuse. So Jesus was saying, love, even if that means you get humiliated repeatedly. Love, even if they abuse your generosity and take and take and take. Love, even if they just keep asking for stuff, give to them, even if they keep begging for more. Love, even if they never give anything back. This is part of the call of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus' next statement is really a summary of what this means we're to do. And you're sure to recognize this verse. It's very well known. Verse 31, he says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so. To them. Recognize that? It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a pretty surprising context for the golden rule, though, isn't it? What this tells us, I think this point, is that as Jesus' followers, we are to love those who hate or hurt us by always responding with how we'd prefer to be treated. We can love those who hate or hurt us by always treating them how we'd wish to be treated. Verse 31 again. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Why do I say this is a surprising context for the golden rule? Well, this verse isn't the main point of this passage. We think of the golden rule and think that it. it must be one of Jesus' most important commands. It's got to be one of the chief moral commands in Scripture, right? No, not really. It is important. But Jesus' main point is here to love our enemies. And this just explains the way that we do that. I noticed something really interesting about the golden rule this week as I was reading this. We usually teach the golden rule as a principle that keeps us from doing bad things. Right? Right? That's the way we teach the golden rule. I think almost every parent, Christian or not, teaches this principle to their kids at some point. Let's say you have a couple kids, and you see one of your kids shove the other one off the couch. Okay? So you run over there, and while you're comforting the one kid, you you go to the shover and say, Billy, would you like to be pushed off a couch? No. Then don't do it to your little sister. Right? That's the way we teach the golden rule. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with doing that. But that's not how Jesus teaches it here, is it? Notice that when we teach the golden rule, we always teach it to the abuser. Hey, don't do that, because you wouldn't like it done to you. But Jesus, when he teaches the golden rule, he taught it to the abused. He taught it to the ones that were being hurt, the ones who were being persecuted, the ones who were being insulted. What this tells me is that the golden rule here is not as much about the initial reaction as it is about the response. It's not as much about avoiding bad actions as it is responding with good actions. He didn't say don't do unto others. He said, do unto others. It was a positive command. Now, this can mean, this absolutely can mean not to seek revenge or not to fight back, but much more so it means to do actively do loving things in return for hatred. Some of you want me to explain how to do this in really simple and really practical terms, but I don't know if you can get any more simple or practical than the golden rule. We teach the golden rule to our young kids because even they can understand it. Right? This is how you apply the golden rule to your life. In the moment, in the moment that someone is hurting you, verbally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, whatever, do some thinking. Think. What are things that I'd love to have someone do for me right now? Okay, think that. What are things that I'd love to have someone do for me right now? And whatever you think of, do it. For them. For your enemies. Thinking, we often talk about WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I think that's always good. But the golden rule is even easier than that. We don't have to think abstractly of what what Jesus would do. Ask yourself, what would I like? What would I like? And Jesus says, whatever you would wish for, that's what you should do for them. It's probably going to be pretty loving, whatever you think of. We do a good job of loving ourselves. Maybe that means going and buying a coffee for them. Saying an encouraging word writing them a nice note, whatever. These would not be easy things to do. But they show love to your enemy. And they may flat out reject your offers of love. There you go. That's turning the other cheek. Jesus is so practical here about what it means to love our enemies. We may still feel that this seems impossible. You see this and we understand. Say, Okay, Jesus wants us to love our enemies. I get that. We understand it up here. But we also know that our hearts sure will not feel like doing this in the moment. And why that matters is if our hearts don't want to do it, then we probably won't do it. We'll just do what comes naturally. React in the moment. Well, I think Jesus is going to address our hearts in the rest of this passage. In the verses that follow, he gives two major reasons why our hearts should want to do this. Why should we actually put up with people's stupidity? and annoyingness, and mockery? Why should we patiently endure opposition, or hatred, or humiliation? Why should we do that? Why should we actually actively love people when they hate us? Here's the first reason. As Jesus' followers, we are to love those who hate or hurt us, holding to the promise of a great reward and relationship. Jesus' promise of a great reward and relationship should provide motivation for us to love our enemies. Here's what I could tell you today. by loving your enemies, things could get better right? Your response may end up changing your enemy for good. They may see it be blown away and wow something about this person. They could even become a Christian. They can join your church, become great friends. History is littered with stories of enemies becoming friends because of some kindness that is shown. So I could tell you this today. After all, it could happen. But I am not going to promise that for you. I'm not going to promise that. Why? Because Jesus doesn't promise fact is, things may not get any better. Things may even get much worse. Your enemies may only double up their hatred and abuse. Our world's rule seems to be do good to others, so they will do good to you. Jesus' command was to love For love's sake, not for our return's sake. Well, we're like Pavlov's dogs, and God knows that rewards do motivate us. And so, in his grace and abundant blessings, he holds out some rewards for us. And that's what he's going to do in this passage. But first, he points out the futility or the folly of trying to earn earthly rewards for our love. Amount. You get what Jesus is saying? He's saying that if we only do what's natural for us, only loving those who love us back, then really there's no benefit or credit for us. You're not going to get any rewards from God for loving people who love you back. Why? Because everyone does this. It's natural. Even most unbelievers or sinners, as he says here. This isn't a mark of a disciple... It's a mark of a human being. Loving those who love you. Doing good to those who do good to you. Lending to those whom you expect to receive. That's natural. Instead, Jesus says, we need to look beyond this life to the next life. Verse 35 says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We've talked about heavenly rewards the last few weeks. It's a theme in Jesus' sermon here, for sure. And he doesn't tell us anything here about what our reward will be, except to say that it will be great. Jesus doesn't throw around adjectives. When he says it's going to be great, it's going to be great. It will make all suffering or harm pale in comparison. In fact, in God's kingdom of reversal, this whole reversal, He will reverse our pain to be joy. You may not get people's love or recognition on earth, but what Jesus promises, you'll get recognized and honored by the Creator. see the second part of the promise in verse 35? Not only will you get rewarded, but you'll have a relationship that far transcends all human relationships. He says, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This doesn't mean that we can earn our salvation or earn our relationship with God. This means that us doing these good things will prove us to already be sons of God. Verse 35 in the New Living Translation says, You will truly be acting as children of the Most High. Ladies, don't be turned off by the phrase, sons of the Most High here. It's simply a word for children of God. When we believe in Jesus, we become God's children. By new birth. We become God's children all because of his love. We read this earlier. 1 John three one says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Being God's children is a blessing that words cannot describe. It's incredible. And this incredible relationship should really be reflected in the way that we live. It should give us boldness. After all, what can the world actually do to a child of the living God? What can they do? Psalm 118, 6-7 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The worst... That those who hate you can do is kill you. That's the worst. But really, that doesn't even kill you. What's, most of us will never face that anyway. What's the worst that they can do? No matter what the world does to hate us, insult us, reject us, or abuse us, they can never take away the powerful relationship that you have with God as his child. They can never take that away. And let me ask you this. What happens when a father sees someone beating up his child? Thinking that way, who actually has reason to be The fact that we are sons and daughters, beloved sons and daughters of God, with a great reward on the way, should be incredible motivation for us to love even those who hurt us. However, there's an even greater reason that we should seek to love our enemies, and it goes way back to whom we claim to follow. Do you follow Jesus with your life? You follow Jesus with your life. If you do, then you're charged to follow his example. And this is what we're going to see in the final verse here, that as Jesus followers, we are to love those who hate or hurt us because God first loved people who hated and hurt him. We need to love our enemies because that's what God did. You notice what this or what it said at the end of verse 35? It says, But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Who is that? Who are the ungrateful and the evil? Your enemies? No. No. That's actually everyone in the world, including us. We did not appreciate God's blessings when he poured them out on us. We were ungrateful, and we spat in his face. We sinned against God in every way imaginable, and thus became evil to the core. We made ourselves actually become God's enemies. At war with him. And yet, God was kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He showed us mercy. Kept us alive. Kept giving us blessings. He revealed himself to us. And he provided a way that we can be saved. Jesus finishes up this section by adding that this is why we should be merciful. Verse 36 says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Why was God kind or merciful to us? Because that's who he is by nature. He is, by his very essence, a merciful and kind God, a God of love. God is love. And when Jesus spoke here, it was before the cross came. And God was already by nature and eternally merciful by nature, loving to the evil. But the greatest show of loving mercy we've ever seen happened at the cross. If anyone had enemies, Jesus sure did before he died. And religious leaders angry mob, the mocking soldiers, Pilate, Herod, Judas, Jesus was hated. You can see it in the way that in people's fierce anger against him. Jesus was cursed by people. They hurled insults at him and openly mocked him. Jesus was abused, whipped, beaten, pierced by thorns and nails, hung, asphyxiated. They struck him in his face, humiliating. They took his clothes, all of them. They demanded of him, abused his generosity, took everything he owed. And what did he do? What did he do? He peacefully and vulnerably endured the hurt. He followed the golden rule, loved his enemies through it all, still dying for them. He held on to hope as God's son who was promised a great reward. And as he died, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. First Peter two twenty three says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to to him who judges justly. Because he entrusted himself to his Father, the Father saw him through it all, and the Father raised him back from the dead and exalted him in heaven. And there Jesus still stands, mercifully offering new life to the evil and ungrateful like you and me. If you're willing... You can believe and be saved from your sins today. God is willing to make you his child. Not because of you, but because of his son, Jesus. If you'd like to talk more about this or, or pray about this, I'd love to speak with you as we close. I invite you as we sing at the end to just come on up. Come and talk to me and, and pray. I'll promise you, we'll talk about God's great mercy. How merciful He is to all of us. To you and to me. And once we've all experienced God's love in its truest form, we shouldn't be able to help but to extend love to others. Even, even those who treat us like scum. You know, said earlier that this can seem impossible. And really, that's because it is impossible. It is impossible on our own and in our own strength. I asked you whether your love has limits. But that's kind of a dumb question. Of course our love has limits. We're limited people by nature. But when we seek to love others with God's love, not our own, with God's love, love that loves the haters, then the impossible for us becomes possible with God because God's love truly has no limits. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Heavenly Father, you know that our weak and miserable forms of love never measure up to your love. I pray that you would empower us to love those around us. Not only those who love us back, but those who hate us back. I pray that our hearts would be pure, our motivations would be pure, We would above all seek to emulate you in your example, your astounding, amazing, incredible love for each one of us. Even when we hated, you loved us first. We thank you for that, God, and we praise you. Jesus.